All right. Did I miss any blanks? Were you guys good? Oh. 3B. Plead. Oh, B? Long to be unashamed when reading God's word. Any other? Oh, yes, identity. So, so my thinking is okay. Here's the definition. We're just declaring who who is blessed. This person, these people are blessed, and they're described six ways. And then the basis, because God's commanded it. And then what's the right response? So it's the identity of the truly blessed, the basis for true blessedness, and longing for true blessedness. That's the uh, the flow of it. Okay. Um, any questions on what we covered this morning? Covered a lot of stuff that I'd love to clarify if there's any confusion on it. Um, you guys are all good. Nothing I said was confusing or controversial. Or Okay. There's the distinction I made between positional righteousness and practical righteousness make any sense? Um, It's an important distinction to make. Um, The Reformation happened in part because Rome failed to make the distinction one way. (laughs) They confused our growing holiness as that by which God accepted us, our justification. But then we don't want to go so far the other way that, okay, then since, since our obedience has nothing to do with our justification, our obedience has nothing to do with our being declared innocent, then let's just never talk about obedience because we we don't want to run the risk of being confused. That's the other error that a lot of um, American Christianity and evangelifishism um, <laughs> produces. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Churchianity, you know. Um, and uh, so... So that's probably more the error we would be likely to encounter. You could encounter someone, I'm working to earn favor with God, and that's wrong. And um, I, I think striking that balance is, is critical um, to, to understand how to read a song like this and not read it as legalism and condemnation and as some impossible task that super-Christians appeal to. This is meant to be practical. God gave this to his people. And, um, and so I'm trying to highlight, like, no, this is a real obedience we're talking about. This isn't like, in Jesus, my way is blameless. In Jesus, I'm walking in God's law. Like, yeah, and hopefully, like, in Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday as well. Um, that, that, that's, I think, a critical point to make. Any questions on the, oh, yes, sir. We need a microphone. Can the man in the front get a mic? So is there a cause and effect on John fourteen twenty one? Is that the proper motivation for obedience for getting to know God better? That's a great question. Um, let me let me. I'm going to pause and teach you something I learned at college at a practical logic class, and this is like the most helpful thing I learned. Um, you'll frequently find in Scripture if then statements. John fourteen fifteen is one. Um, if you want to know the technical terms, the if is the protasis. The then is the apotesis. doesn't matter if you know that or not. So if you think about it symbolically, what you have is an if condition A is met, then condition B is met. 
If A is present, B is present. If A, then B is how you sort of think about it. So to use a silly example, no, a simple example. If it is raining, the grass is wet. That's your if-then. If-thens do not connotate causality necessarily. They may. They may. All you're saying is when this happens, this also happens. That's all you can get from it. Um, and so one of the things that's helpful is people will oftentimes misconstrue the logical implications of an if-then statement. If it's raining, the grass is wet does not mean if the grass is wet, it's raining. could have rained 20 minutes ago. It also doesn't mean if it's not raining, the grass is not wet. Again, sprinklers could be on, right? There's only one logically necessary conclusion you can draw from an if-then statement. And the way to think about it this is helpful. It's called the contrapositive, and I don't care if you know that, um, is take the A and B, reverse the order, and, and then put not, reverse the polarity. So if A, then B, necessitates if not B, not A. That's the only other logically necessary conclusion. The only other conclusion that must be true from if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, is if you don't keep my commandments, take the B, negate it, then you don't love me. So flip the order, flip the polarity. If, it's, if the grass is not wet, it ain't raining. That's the only other necessary conclusion that you can draw. And so it's a good question. Well, is this the cause or the effect? John 14, 15 doesn't necessarily tell us. Just if you love me, you keep my commandments. I think it's cause and effect. I, I do believe that, but I argue that from other passages. All Jesus is saying, if condition A is true, condition B is true as well. They're coextensive or co-relative, if you want to think of it that way. Um, so, and, and correlation doesn't necessarily prove causality. I'm, I'm just trying to be careful in our inferences and thinking. I tend to think in John 14, 15, it is causal, but not because of John 14, 15. I, I think it's, that is the case. But if you simply want to reason from the Bible, all we know is if, if A, then B. If A is true, B is true. And from that, we can also conclude if not B, then not A. That's the only logically necessary. Just, I found that really helpful in a logic class. I'm only belaboring it because in you know, 20 years out of college, I still use that all the time. Because you'd be amazed how often we can think sloppily and take, take, if you love me, keep my commandments. If I see someone keeping Christ's commandments, it does not guarantee they love him. We know that there's a, a legalism and a, and, a, and a fruit that can look legitimate for a while, a seed that grows up in rocky soil, right? All we can conclude is if you find somebody who isn't keeping Christ's commandments, whatever else is going on, they don't love Jesus. That's all the only other conclusion we can draw necessarily. Okay? Does that make, that make sense? That's, just, that's free? That's just free for showing up here. Yes, sir. So, um, Micro microphone, microphone, microphone. I'm sorry, I, I may have misspoke. Yeah, yeah. I, I meant John fourteen twenty one. Mm. If any, oh, I thought you were saying fourteen fifteen. So all that whole aside was just me yabbering. Okay, great. Um, I do that from time to time, so you got to forgive me. Okay, fourteen. You mean twenty three and twenty four that we read? No, twenty one. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't think it's causal there. What we have is identities. Okay. Okay. The person A is true of is also the person B is true of. The person 
who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So, so the person that A is true of, B is true of, and the person who B is true of is loved by my father. And so we, we don't know causality here. All we know is these are coextensive. They, they, happen at this, they happen in reference to each other. Where A is B, where, it, where A is true, B is true, and where B is true, C is true. So what you end up with is actually if A, then B, and if B, then C ratio. These things exist together. If you see one of them, you can be certain the other two are present as well. That's, that's the idea. Um, and we can't necessarily say which one causes which um, from this passage. You'd have to argue from other passages. 21, not 21? So what does 21 Whoever has my commandments and ke- Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So there we've got this identity. A is the same as B. Whoever is A is B. Whoever keeps my commandments loves me. And then, and whoever loves me, whoever B, will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Yeah. And so that's the part I'm asking about. Yes. About mani- what, what does manifest in myself? Oh, reveal. Yeah. Reveal himself. Well, I th- so I'm, I'm, I may be off base here. So no, no, you... you clear, clear. No, let me clarify. You, you may be right. I'm only starting with what is logically necessary. It may be that if the grass is wet, it's raining. That may well be the case. It just doesn't have to be the case. So then the next question is, is this cause and effect? I'm looking up, hold on a sec, because you do... The ESV has a future tense, which actually would imply causality if it's backed up by the Greek, which I'm looking up now. Hold on. Um, so if anyone loves me, okay, 23, um, answered them, Jesus saying, um, 21, hold on a sec, the one having the commandment of me and keeping it, okay, the one having the commandment of me and keeping it, this one is the one loving me. And the one loving me, agape thesitai. Future passive indicative will be loved by the father of me, and I will love future also. Him. Yeah. So there, yeah, I would say there's at least an implied causality. The one doing these things will, something will happen. Now, it doesn't necessarily prove causality. It simply does show sequence. And I'm just saying, strictly speaking, just because people can make all sorts of wrong inferences, um, the one this is true of, this other thing will be true of, it still doesn't necessarily prove causality. It just shows order and sequence. Um, does that make sense? No, no. You may be right. I would just look to other passages to fill in and clarify. From this passage alone, what you said might be the case. It doesn't have to be the case.
Does that make does that distinction make sense? Yeah. And so, is there any other verses? Second Corinthians four. That would say, if I obey, then oh. I grow in understanding. Yes, I think second Corinthians. Go to second Corinthians four is, I think, a really helpful um, passage to give us a paradigm or a picture of what sanctification looks like. Um, sanctification is just a five dollar word for holification, holiness. Sanctify, sancti- just holiness, purity. It's a, it's a real word for made up word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the problem is, because the word only gets used in religious context, it can bring on, like, righteousness. It's rightness. You know what I mean? It's just a pro. So when, like, when I was looking at Psalm um, 8, was it 18 we were looking at? To show David saying, look, I've done what's right. The Lord vindicated me according to my righteousness. If you only ever think of righteousness in a church Paul Roman setting, you're going to really trip up when David says, hey, I'm righteous. Like, there's none righteous. No, not one. You know, amen. So the one danger with sanctifies, I don't think anyone uses sanctify outside of religious context. And so it can get this sort of holy roller vibe to it. It's just the root, the Greek root for holy or pure. And then it's the verb to holify, to purify. Right. And so it, that's all I'm. And the Greek totally does it. Greek takes nouns and turns them into verbs constantly. Um, Discipleize the nations. Those take disciple and anyway. Yes, Seb, it's a made-up word for a real word. Yep, okay. Um, so 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think we were here last time. Um, 2 Corinthians 4. The 3, sorry, 3. My bad. Um, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So my picture of sanctification is this. You're looking to God's Word to see the glory of God. And God reveals some new glory, some new excellency, some new truth. And that changes you. It, you then change. And I think by clear implication, your practice, your living, all of you changes. It starts with your mind and your affections, and it works itself out. So, so you see, and then you begin to reflect this new glory. Then God shows you a new thing. Here's a new wonderful thing. Then you begin to reflect that. And, and that is the Christian life, is from one degree of glory to another, seeing and being changed. But the changing is real changing. I mean, your life is changing. So God is from degree to degree making you more like Jesus in this life now. You'll never get there all the way there. But that is the Christian life, is constantly being transformed from one degree of glory to another. As you behold things in the word, and as that then really changes you, you change in response. And then God, in effect... It's the same thing any father does to their kids. Oh, you've learned a new chore. You've learned a new thing. Great. Let me teach you this new thing. Let me show you. That. I'm constantly doing that with my kids. So right now, one of my kids, they're trying to learn how to sweep the floor after dinner. Another kid's on to loading the, I mean, Abner can load and run the laundry. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. No. And we're constantly t- and we're teaching them other fun things. It's not all work, you know. Or teaching them um, new board games. or teaching them how to do things out in the yard teaching them how to fold up hoses, you know. And and so constantly as my kids learn something, I'm showing them a new thing. I mean, that's what parents do. And that's what God's doing with us as he grows us. So that's that's my sort of picture of sanctification, which I think fits in with what you're saying. That's that's one place I'd go to to show that. Um, 
And so sometimes but the practical what that means is if I'm asking God to show me something in his word, I don't understand something, and I'm banging my head against the wall, a good check is, has there been something God's shown you that you aren't doing? <laughs> because until the last degree of glory you saw changes you, why does he need to show you some new thing? Like, hey, Jeremy, I showed you that bit about being patient with your kids. No, but I want to know about, I showed you that bit about being patient with your kids. <laughs> you know, right? Um, so that's, that's sometimes a check with ourselves. That, and also that anytime we're looking to understand the word, it needs to be to change us. It can't just be an exercise in academics. I want to know the answer. I want to argue it on the internet. But it needs to change me, right? Um, so, okay. Good question. Next question, thoughts? Yes, sir. Well, sort of along that line of sanctification, mm. uh, I think Jesus gives us a good practical use of it mm. um, in a sense of having an outward sanctification, looking, having the um, outward look of being set apart and being uh, God's people. When we look at Matthew five twenty-seven, and this is a, I mean, He's looking at men's hearts. Mm. This is something secret. This is something uh, men don't go around confessing. Oh, you know, I'm lusting after this one. Uh, pray mm. for me. Well, we don't do that. Right. And what does Jesus do? I mean, he, he's talking to religious people. He's talking to people who know the law mm. and outwardly keep the law. Mm. But he takes it to a point of, understand, of saying, but you have heard it said. You know, if thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you look with lust, you've already committed it already. Right. And I think, you know, when we see that, it's showing us of going from that one degree of glory to another, because this is something that is a struggle that he's bringing to the point of every time you do this. And as a believer, if we have the spirit and we're grieving the spirit by disobeying the spirit, whatever that disobedience happens to be, what does he call us to do? He calls us to repent. He calls us to that point of understanding. Mm. Even though outwardly you look good, but you know on the inside you still have this sin that you need to deal with. And it's not, you know, one of those sins, oh, you know, I saw Mark robbing the bank again. He, he did it again, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. You just need to stop doing that. Let's, right. You know. But that, that's outward. That's something we can see. That's something we can all condemn. Yeah. But the inward is, yeah. is that's what he's looking at, that inward. But it also needs to, mani if it's manifested on the outward, but, on the, you know, the inward is full of dead men's bones, the two have to match up. Your, Amen. Your inner and your outer has right. to match up. So whether it's cause and effect or whether it's both and, right. they, you know, they go together. Well, I tend to think it's a ver not a vicious circle, but a virtuous circle. You know, we're seeing, we're being changed, we're seeing, and we're constantly caught up in this seeing and changing, seeing and changing cycle. Um, that uh, yes, yeah, the opposite of a vicious circle, it's the, yeah, virtuous circle. Amen. Like said, right? yeah. Not that I have Tain, but I. I press on. Yeah. So, so what I was trying to get at this morning, and I'll, I'll pause for a moment. There's a, a, a post later on today. 
Kevin DeYoung had a really helpful message from T4G about four years ago um, titled The Hole in Our Holiness. There can be a, and, and again, this gets down to balance because you can totally go the wrong way with this. And the balance is, on the one, is, is speaking about obedience is something we can do. The New Testament absolutely treats imperfect, flawed, could have done it better, obedience is a real thing and a seeable thing. And we can so swing to wanting to give Christ glory for everything that you end up with um, theology of Tullian Tajikian, where, you know, you're just a glorious wreck and a glorious ruin. And why bother? And Psalm, no, but you know what I'm talking and, and it's sort of like glorying in your weakness. And there's a way to glory in your weakness. Then do what Psalm 119 does and cry out for help to obey and do it. Um, where where you almost, it almost becomes kind of like a let go and let God. Well, why bother trying? Because all my best deeds are filthy rags and it's all Jesus. And that's great for like soccer mom sins. It, it, the, 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 no, I get it. Oh, I get anxious. I'm a little perfectionist. No, no. The best, no, the best critique. This, this came. What? There's no prejudice, no. I'm, prof- I'm profiling. That's what I'm doing. Okay. No, but what I mean is we've got respectable sins. You know, it's the ones we talk just I'm, I'm a little perfectionistic. I've just been a little anxious. But no one says you're glorious ruin to someone who's like, you know, beating their wife or their kids. Well, don't be too hard on yourself. I mean, after all, Christ died for your sin. And so the best critique of this approach, um, what's his name? The British expat, Carl Truman. And he basically said, I want to know how this theology works when you're dealing with a child molester. I want to know how this theology works when you're dealing with someone who's a rapist. Do you say to them, oh, don't, don't beat yourself up. Christ died and there's no good. No, it doesn't work. It works for, maybe, the, maybe instead of soccer mom sins, I'll say respectable sins. You know? And so people say, oh, don't beat yourself up about being anxious. Well, if you really are confessing sin, you should be striving to mortify, mortify the anxiety. And not just being like, oh, what do you do? You know, and we have to have that within a context where, of course, we'll never be perfect. Of course, they'll never need to stop changing. But we really are growing. We really are putting on new behavior. And we need to do it understanding every step of the way. We need God's grace to help us. And, and, and maintaining that balance where you're not entering into, I'm earning, my, I'm earning my merit. And I'm doing it on my own. Or the other side of, because it doesn't enter into justification, it's really completely unimportant is the tightrope we need to walk moving forward. Does that distinction start? Sorry for trick. Did I trigger you? No. Were you triggered? Okay. I almost got canceled. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Um, sorry. Sorry. Okay. Uh, no, that's fine, Colleen. I can take it. I can take it. Okay. Other... We went to soccer team. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, okay. Oh, Elsa. I just want to make a comment on uh, we we getting so used to, you know, this is the new normal. I mean, people aren't shocked anymore. Even if you look at abortion, it's like just one of those things. You know, we can't. What do you connect? I'm, I'm not saying I disagree. I'm not seeing what, what are you connecting with? 
No, with with sin, oh, you know, yeah, we yeah. we we think um, yeah. certain sins we should address, but others we needn't address because right. it's okay, you know. Right. And it's shocking when you think of something like abortion, how awful it is, and yeah. how we just let that go by because we don't want to get involved in that controversy. It's just too difficult. We don't want to. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm just really approving of saying controversy. I liked it. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> No, I'm dead serious. You said controversy, right? Controversy. Amen. That's awesome. What? Okay, sorry. We m- Americans yeah, would say. Con- what? What? <laughs> what? What am I supposed to say? No, yeah, that's awesome. It's fantastic. I like it. I like it better. Oh. I like it better. Oh no, that's like laboratory and laboratory and lavatory. Privacy or privacy? Privacy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're back. Sorry. Yes. Yes. We can become. We can become. Yeah. We can become, and we we so want to uh, want to avoid, and rightly so. Be. I mean, if the American church, in most cases, is in danger, it's in danger. We don't want to look legalistic. We don't want to look pharisaical. The second we make judgments or make declarations, we're terrified someone's going to now. Sadly, there are churches and places where you are dealing with Phariseeism and legalism. But on the other hand, Jesus is clear. His sheep, you will know them by their fruit, right? And so we need to adopt a position where disciples of Jesus are trying to follow Jesus. I mean, to me, it's easier if you think of my home. Um, I've told my children, at least the older ones, um, They'll always have a place in my house as long as they meet two conditions. They're doing something useful with their time. They're not just playing Xbox. Useful doesn't mean getting paid, but they're doing something useful with their time, and they're, on, they're, they're endeavoring to honor and respect their mother and father. And as long as they meet those two conditions, if I'm able, they have a place in my home. I'm never going to kick them out. But if, if they're unwilling to pursue those things, they are going to have to find a new place to live um, because I can't. This gets back to relationship. I can't redefine the father-child relationship. What people don't get is when the child's being rebellious and the parents just are like, okay. What's happened is the kids said, hey, let's change our relationship. Instead of you being my authority, you can be my coach and my friend and my peer. And I don't have the, I don't have the authority under God to say okay to that. I can say to my kid, I want to be your parent. I want to be your father. But I don't have the authority to say, well, like, if I can't be your father, I'll just be your friend. Like, no, I want to be your father. You're welcome to be my child. And, of course, at different ages, when they get married, that those things change, right? But so, so in my home, all my kids, I expect, most of the time are endeavoring to honor and obey their parents. Imperfectly, with periods of rebellion where there's discipline. Absolutely. But what characterizes my kids? I could say, where you see my kids, you see people who are trying, imperfectly, sometimes weakly, to please their parents, right? That, that's not a crazy statement to make or make it negative. There are no people who are habitually, consistently endeavoring to rebel. It's just, it's not characteristic of my kids. And if it was, eventually, they'd have to stop being part of my household, eventually. Um, okay, God wants a relationship with you. He wants to be your father. And God says, and my kids try to obey me. My kids try to please me. You know, that's... The Bible says that a fair bit. And, of course, it gets tricky because we have periods where we do disobey and we do rebel, and God disciplines us, and that gets caught up in it as well. But, but that's the New Testament or the biblical assumption. 
is that God's kids or the king's subjects are endeavoring to please him and obey. And, and sadly, in some places, that can be like a controversial statement, you know. Um, so any questions on that? I'm, I'm going off on a point that I care about. Precisely because in my, here, I'll give you a little autobiography. I think many of you know this, but I'm looking at enough new faces. I'll share this. I, I care about belaboring this point because I was uh, lulled into a false security of salvation precisely on this error. So I went, my, my mom won the tug of war with my Catholic father, and I went to a very conservative Christian elementary school in the early years of my life. I cannot remember the day I learned the gospel truths. I'm sure there was a day, but in my memory, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for sinners. He's the son of God. He's fully God. He's man. He bore my sins on the cross. He rose on the third day by the basis of faith and no works. God legally credits me with righteousness. I've known that as far back as I can reach in my memory. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll take that. And in my teens, I began to rebel. My inward nature came out so much. So my parents sent me to military school. I went to military school for three years. When I got out of military school, I ended up dropping out of high school. I was in a hard rock band. We were going to be rich and famous. And instead, I just slept on a lot of couches and, and partied a lot for a number of years. And the whole time, no church attendance, no reading of the word, no conviction of sin, no pursuit of God, just, just thorns and nothing but thorns in my life. The whole time, I would have told you I was a Christian just a bad one. I actually had a conversation to that effect. One night I was at, on the University of New Hampshire campus and I was outside throwing up. I'd been drinking so much and a little cross my sister gave me and as I'm bending over, it sort of came out and this person who's there with me said, oh, are you a Christian? And I looked up with you know, vomit dripping from my lip. This is, this is the truth. And I said, yeah, just a bad one. That was, I had a category for that. You know, like I wasn't going for a golden halo. It was like golden headband, you know. And, and by God's grace, and I really believe this, by God's grace, he let the leash out on me enough that even my unbelieving friends were telling me I had problems um, with, with the excess to which I was partying and stuff. And that led me in the summer of 1999 to read my Bible. And up until that point, the few times I talked to my Christian friends, they just lulled me back to sleep. Um, I, I'll give you another true story. I remember being, um, it was like three in the morning. I've been drinking all night. And I, you, know, you can sometimes become a philosopher when that happens. And around three in the morning, I look over at my friend who's driving me home. And I said, dude, I think I'm going to hell. And he looks at me and says, why is that? I said, just look at me. I'm a mess. To which he said, look, you believe it's by faith and not works, right? I said, yeah. You've asked Jesus to forgive you, right? Yeah. Well, then party on, dude. Don't worry about it. Oh, okay. No, I mean, that, so I, I care about this. And so it was second, first, first John 2, two passages God used to sort of shatter my false assurance were first John 2, 3, and 4 in Matthew 7. And first John 2, 3, and 4 says, by this we know that we have come to know him, that we keep his commandments. The one who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I don't know how you get around that passage. It is so black and white and clear. Um, now, you've got to discuss what does it mean to keep. Fair enough. But it's just there's no wiggle room. And that, that smashed my false assurance. And so somewhere in, somewhere in late July, August of 99, the Lord humbled me, just, just drove me down to the ground. Then he gave me a new heart, and he opened my eyes, and he saved me. But 
I was precisely saved out of this error that thought that faith and the way you live your life are completely disconnected. And they're not. And then in the Bible, again and again, assumes what you believe, you do. What you believe, you act on. And so we're not saved by what we do, but we're saved by what we believe. And so that's, that's partly why I'm trying to hammer this is because Psalm 119 is written for people who get out of those first four verses with the same, I want that. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I want that. And then when it's, why don't you join in with me and ask God to help you do that? We're going, yeah, as opposed to, well, that's really uninteresting. Sounds kind of legalistic. Sounds kind of hard. And I'm really more interested in my fantasy football league. Um, that's the, the psalm is assuming we're joining in with the psalmist going like almost like your mouth watering going, I want that. So I, I want to, yes. Okay, oh. oh, yeah. On that day, many will say to me, in fact, I'll tell you one other story. Because my, my friend who I was having these conversations with, his name's Chris, um, he, he and I often sort of joke now, he became a believer too, that he was Romans 2 and I was Romans 1. I was like the rank pagan and he was the moralist. He was the guy who would drive, you know, he was the sober driver guy, he was a friend. And I remember he lived down the street from me the, the time period I got saved. And so I, I took a week off from work to read my Bible. My, my, my roommate made my schedule. And so I just said, hey, I want to take off next week. Why? I got to get right with God and read my Bible. He's like, Okay. So I told him, he's like, what are you up to? I'm like, oh, I'm going to get right with God. I've got to read my Bible. He's like, okay, kidder. Let me know how that goes. <laughs> and so I, I come over one day, and I say to him, hey, man, um, what's these people's problem? And it's the Matthew 7, the Lord, Lord people. And he just looked at it, and I'm like, I don't know. No, no, that's not what he said. He said, that's us. And I said, no, that's not us. If you remember, in Matthew 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do these works in your name? Did we not perform any mighty miracles? Cast out demons in your name. I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you workers of lawlessness. He said, that's us. I said, oh, no, it's not. They got a list of stuff they were doing. We're like half a mile behind them in line. Like, if this is the appeals line, they're way ahead of us. And he was just, you know, it it was the first time it sort of hit him like, "Uh uh-oh, you know. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was the other passage, Matthew 7. It was Matthew 7 and 1 John 2 that God so kindly used to shatter my false assurance of salvation. Um, that be, and it became clear, if you want me to spell it out, my deeds made it clear I did not believe what I professed to believe. It was clear I did not, put it simple, I didn't believe Jesus was king because I didn't treat him like he was king. I was king. Um, I believe Jesus was the son of God like I believe George Washington was our first president. I cared nothing about it. I think it's a fact that's true. But he wasn't my king. He wasn't my savior. Um, I was not acting as though I believed these things were true. And so that, that would be what I'd say. I did, it was evident to me I did not have faith. I was not a person of faith because clearly what I believed was hedonistic, self-fulfilling, self-aggrandizing, self-centered, um, Hedonism. That was what I believed because that's what I was living. Um, clearly. Okay. For instance, we're not all biography. I'll give you one other, one other thing of God's kindness in my life. So, one other point that's clicking. I was a real um, towards the end there of my um, of my unbelieving life. I was a real miserable person. I was gravitating very much towards nihilism, and um, which is a philosophy that's meaningless, pointless. Um, partly due to my dad's accident when he became a quadriplegic. I was like, well, what's the point if that can happen like that and your life can fall apart? 
and partly because like Solomon, I was finding no fulfillment in, in partying and in sex and in, and in all that type of thing. And so I was just, I was a real pleasant guy to be around, especially if I was drinking. And I was at my friend's party, small gathering at his house. And I got in a debate with him and this other guy, Dan, till like two in the morning um, over what the meaning of life was. Because they were sitting there, they were businessmen, aspiring businessmen, and money and success is the meaning of life. Well, I waded into that. I was like, oh, really? And so we go back and forth. But these are sharp guys till about three in the morning. And I'll never forget Dan Maltez turning to me and saying, about two in the morning, okay, well then, Jeremy, if that's not the point of life, what is? And I was so unused to having the questions fired back at me. I was the guy who dismantled things. I stopped for a second and I said, I guess uh, figuring out how to be reconciled with God and doing that. And he said, why aren't you doing that? And that went off like a, I mean, that just, I couldn't escape. I was driving home the next morning and I could not escape that because what he was saying was, Jeremy, you're miserable. Jeremy, you're scared of judgment. And yet you know that if what you're saying is true, the only sane thing that matters in life is being right with God. And you're doing nothing about it. Are you surprised you're miserable? Are you surprised you're unfulfilled? Are you surprised your life isn't working out? And I realized that what I said I believed, I didn't really believe. <laughs> because if I did believe it, I'd be doing something different, right? That was, that was a key moment in like, maybe I don't believe the things I say I believe. Because if I did, I think I'd be doing different things. <laughs> um, so anyway, sorry for that all along the side. But that's, those are all some of the... the uh, factors of how God brought me to faith in the summer of 99. So, so this issue, getting this right, the relationship of good works, not as the cause, but as the effect, not as the root, but as the fruit of our salvation is, is important to me. You can err by making it necessary to be saved, but you can also err by making it completely having nothing to do with salvation. We're saved unto good works. Um, in Ephesians, the prepositions there are helpful. In Ephesians, um, 2, 8, 9, and 10. Literally, the Greek phrase prepositions ex, like exodus, from out of. We're not saved from out of good works, as if we're in a state of good works, and once we get in that state, God will yank us out and save us. We're not saved from out of good works, but we're saved ice into good works. God saves us so that we can produce good works. And, and that, that relationship's critical to get right. Um, we're not saved because of what we do. But God saves us so we can do stuff. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we don't want to leave that out in some attempt to not be Roman Catholic. So, okay. We got five minutes. I went off on a tirade, but hey. Five minutes. Last questions. Go. Anybody? Oh, Renee. Lucia. Sorry, it's not a question. Yeah. Um, I just want to thank you for sharing your testimony because like four years ago, I was really convicted of we shall overcome by the blood of the lamb and our, the word of our testimony. And our testimony is powerful. So thank you for that. Well, I, I want to take some of my own medicine. If God's going to do good, I want to tell people about it. Right, right. So, thank you. yeah. Thank you. I'm happy to tell how the goodness of my God. But understand, it was the love and kindness of God that, that broke me and terrified me and made me not have sleepful, sleep, have sleepless nights and dread standing before me. Because that's where the, this started was this, this sinking, like, I don't feel confident, but what will happen when I'll die? It was during, like, the, the 2000 craze. There was a certain amount of paranoia in 1999 about the two. You know, apparently the world was going to stop, you know. 
And so that, I don't know if that dread began it, but it sort of, going into 1999, it just had this growing sense of, I don't think I'm ready to stand before God. And I kept trying to shove it down and suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And finally, I, uh, I just concluded, I got to get to the bottom of this. I got to, I mean, in God's grace, I threw myself into what I got into. But in God's grace, I was never at the right party where I could have gotten to hard drugs. I, I'm sure I would have. Um, all of the people I admired in the music industry were doing it. I just never was at the right parties. And so part of me also knew the way I was living Eventually, it was going to be a quick spiral down the tube, and I was going to be dead. I mean, I, I, there's enough intelligent part of me that understood <laughs> one day you're going to show up to that wrong party. One day you're going to show up to the wrong thing, and then it's going to be a fast. And so part of me was thinking before that happens, I need to figure out if there is something to this, if the, if the rabbit hole goes any deeper, if there's, if there's more to being a Christian than what I think, or do we just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? And that was part of it when I was getting into it. It was like, okay, I need to figure out, because what I'm doing isn't working. So either Christianity doesn't work, or I'm not doing it right. <laughs> and I need to figure that out before I get too much further on the path I'm on, so... And now we are pretty much at time. Anyone got a quick question? Or we can, I can let you go two minutes early. I'm trying to figure out if your speed to pay attention is what led to nothing happening on life and Because God was waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, okay. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's uh, yeah, God, God is good. And, and understand he disciplines those he loves. And I could not be more thankful that he shattered and broke and, and ground me down to get me to realize my lostness. He didn't flatter me. You know, he didn't tell me what a great guy I was. He, he broke me and then has been putting me back together ever since. Okay, with that, you all are dismissed. God bless. <laughs>